You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Another look at Pyongyang's Kim Suki campaign, fishing with bogus Google Docs, how Tehran got its hands on voter information, Rick Howard looks at containers and serverless functions, Malek Ben Salem shares the results of Accenture's 2020 Cyber Threatscape report, and looking ahead to the election influence endgame. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, November 2nd, 2020. Researchers at security firm Cyber Reason have released an account of North Korea's Kimsuki activity, the work of a threat group also known as Velvet Kalima. Black Banshee, and Thallium. Their research follows up information developed and shared by CISA last week. Cyber Reason offers several new pieces of analysis, including descriptions of the KGH spy modular spyware toolset and the C-Spy downloader, both of which lend additional stealth to the group's operations. The Kimsuki operators began working against South Korean targets, but their interests have expanded impressively. Among the targets Cyber Reason identifies are pharmaceutical and biomedical research companies working on COVID-19 vaccines and therapies, the UN Security Council, South Korea's Ministry of Unification, which works on inter-Korean relations, various human rights groups, which usually take a jaundiced view of Pyongyang's dismal record, the South Korean Institute for Defense Analysis, various educational and academic organizations, selected think tanks, government research organizations, journalists who cover foreign relations and defense issues affecting the Korean peninsula, and, of course, the Republic of Korea's military. Kim Suki has reached American targets as well. While Cyber Reason thinks the evidence is short of dispositive, they conclude that there are clues that can suggest that the Kim Suki infrastructure targeted organizations dealing with human rights violations. Wired describes a new scam, evidently the work of Russian organized crime, that fishes victims with bogus invitations to cooperate on Google Drive documents. Essentially, it's Google Drive spam, convincing in the same way earlier campaigns that traded on fake Google Calendar invitations. People are disposed to trust an invitation to collaborate on a document. While Google says it's doing what it can to suppress this campaign, It does note the difficulty of providing foolproof protection from spam. So again, a cautious and skeptical user is the best defense. If the document is unexpected, and if it looks nonsensical, decline the invitation. There have been follow-ups to earlier reports of hostile activity. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency and the FBI have published a description of how Iranian threat actors used the Acunetics Vulnerability Scanner to search websites for voter registration information. Tehran subsequently used the information they obtained from the scans to mount the bogus and implausible Proud Boys campaign of threatening emails, which was quickly exposed and debunked. We say conventionally that the U.S. elections are tomorrow. Strictly speaking, with widespread early voting, they've been in progress for some time. 
But election day proper is tomorrow, and that's the day voting will be complete. Most observers think it unlikely that the vote itself is likely to be successfully manipulated by foreign actors. And much of the disinformation surrounding the election, like the rather bumbling Iranian attempt to discredit a campaign with forged threats we just discussed, has probably already taken place. So the security of the vote itself seems unlikely to be compromised, but there remain 11th-hour threats to the election— It appears that the most probable cybersecurity incidents likely to arise in connection with the voting are disinformation efforts intended to exacerbate fissures in civil society and retrospectively call the legitimacy of the results into question. It's also possible, as Politico notes, that various accidents, malfunctions, or misunderstandings could be misread as cyber attacks. For example, false rumors about the unreliability of new and less familiar voting machines could gain currency. Among those less familiar voting systems are ballot-marking devices. These have for some time been used to help people with disabilities vote, people who, for example, have difficulty reading small print or have a hard time holding a pen. These have been widely adopted in the state of Georgia, for example, and by a number of counties in Pennsylvania. Could such devices be hacked? Well, in principle, sure, but likelier than hacking is the possibility of malfunction or, even likelier, people simply finding them sufficiently unfamiliar to slow down the action of casting a ballot, which voters could misinterpret as a failure or as evidence of tampering. Election officials in most or all states are urging patience and skepticism. People shouldn't expect official results immediately. These things take time. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show Rick Howard, the CyberWire's Chief Analyst and Chief Security Officer. Rick, great to talk to you again. Hey, Dave. Uh, On this week's CSO Perspectives, you are tackling a couple of things, secure containers and serverless functions. Uh, Let's start off with some definitions here. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that when we're talking about containers, we are not talking about those big crates that get shipped around the world on giant seagoing <laughs> vessels. And uh, we'll get to serverless in a minute, but let's let's tackle containers first. 
Well, I think you're right about that. And I would say that's a general consensus for most people in the network defender world, including me, before I started working <laughs> on this story. I had yeah. this big idea what they what these things are, but I wasn't really sure how they fit into the security world. And it turns out that these two concepts are the current state of client-server architecture. I thought they were just some programming technique, but no, it's kind of the evolution of this idea that we've had in the computing world since the late 1960s. And about every 10 years or so, the community levels up the model to something completely different in terms of how we do it. It's basically the same idea, though, client-server, but much more efficient. I, I was thinking about this with my wife this morning. I was remembering my first real big job in the Pentagon in the late 90s. I was the first time I got a network management job, right? And I walked into the data center on my first day, and to my shock, we had all the important applications running on one computer. It was email databases, web server, DNS, everything. So if the Windows server would have crashed, we would have lost everything. And and I know that would never happen on a Windows server back in those days, but <laughs> that's... I thinking to myself, please let it be Linux, please let it be Linux, please let it be Linux. Right, okay. <laughs> so we changed all that. And so basically, instead of one big iron server, one operating system, we changed it to the same thing, but one app per operating system on different machines. So instead of running one server running everything. We went to one server running a bunch, I mean, a bunch of servers running a bunch of things. And that was the standard model for most of us back in those days. Yeah. Right. And then in the 2000s, virtual machines started to become stable. So yeah. that was the big change. CIOs could eliminate some of the cost to all that big iron. They only needed one beefy big iron server with lots of RAM, CPU, and hard drive space. But they would right. have multiple virtual operating systems running partitioned away from each other so if one crashed, the others would still function. So that right. was a little bit better, okay? Um, in the later part of the decade, as cloud services started to come online, CIOs could eliminate the big iron servers altogether. They would put multiple virtual operating systems in the cloud environment, still running one app per operating system, though, but they didn't have to manage all that big iron anymore. So that was better in terms of cost and efficiency. Well, I, I can see where we're going in terms of the overall evolution and the efficiency, but I'm still scratching my head when it comes to the use of resources. I mean, what you're describing here, you know, we're deploying a standalone operating system for every app that we're running. That, that seems like a bit of overkill to me, especially when you consider things like having to keep all of those independently operating operating systems updated with bug fixes and patches and all that sort of stuff. Uh, don't you end up sort of on the, the upgrade and patching hamster wheel if, if that's your approach? <laughs> it's exactly right. And, you know, it's the reason you still see some infamous Windows XP blue screens of death as you walk around airport terminals, right? Because, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, because for those uh, that don't know, Windows uh, or Microsoft ended the life of Windows XP back in 2014. There have been five count them, five completely different operating systems since then, mm -hmm. right? But the application developers for the airport terminal apps found it easier just to keep running the extremely old operating system rather than try to keep their applications up to date, right? And so that was kind of the current state, but this is where containers and serverless functions come in. This is the big innovation, right? So with containers, you build a virtual standalone box of software, that only contains the application plus the software libraries you use to build it and some other nicky-knack binaries it requires, plus a couple of operating system pieces it depends on and a couple of uh, configuration files. And 
run it on a bare bones kernel of an operating system, and that's mm. it. The box is hermetically sealed against any future operating system upgrades or patches. And then every container you build this way shares the base operating system, this kernel, but none of the other flotsam and jetsam features that always come along with the operating system package. So yeah. this protects the container from, say, the most recent NVIDIA graphics driver patch designed to improve the gaming experience of seven-year-olds playing Fortnite, okay? Right. But <laughs> that may cause your app to crash because you share some some of the same software library. Right. right. So, Suddenly nobody knows when their flight's going to arrive at, at, <laughs> at LAX. That's right, because I'm killing the monsters inside of Fortnite, right? Right, uh, right. So that was the giant leap in the client-server architecture idea. Uh, now you have one virtual operating system running in the cloud or your data center and multiple lightweight software containers, each running the apps you want to deploy. Hmm. Okay, well, all right, that makes a lot of sense to me. But So let's swing back around and tell me what's going on when we're talking about um, serverless functionality then how how can how can this stuff running on servers be serverless <laughs> I know I've, I've thought about that for many many years right so uh, <laughs> so the serverless function name represents a bit of confusion here right so of course there are servers in this evolution of client server architecture they don't disappear they have to be running somewhere uh, yeah. the point is they are serverless for the customer uh, the customer doesn't have to manage the server and operating system at all. The cloud provider does it. Serverless functions take the idea of containers to the extreme. Instead of maintaining an operating system and building your own containers, developers write the code, the functions in other words, and deploy them in the cloud provider system for future execution. Hmm. All right. I, I guess I'm still trying to, to get past uh, this not being semantics and smoke and mirrors. I mean, it sounds to me like... Uh, these are these are programming techniques. Um, I, I, I see the value in in sort of developers being able to kind of isolate potentially buggy code. But what about the security implications here? How does it how does it affect that? Well, I mean, you're you're spot on here, right? Because the difference in this new kind of client server architecture today compared to how we wrote code before uh, is that these things take up internet real estate. They essentially add more attack surface for a potential adversary to leverage and require the same first principle cybersecurity protections that we would apply to any other digital asset within our organization. They're exposed or they're more exposed than they were in, in previous lifetimes. Hmm. All right. Well, it is. It sounds like you got a great episode going. I mean, this is one. This is a can't. This is a don't miss episode of CSO Perspective. So I know. I know I'm going to be tuning in because it sounds to me like uh, I got a lot to learn that I didn't know I had to learn. So uh, I'm going to let you teach me. It's uh, CSO Perspectives. It's part of CyberWire Pro. Rick Howard, thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. 
That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Malek Ben-Salem. She is the America's security R&D lead at Accenture Labs. Malek, it's always great to have you back. Uh, you all recently released uh, the most recent version of your Cyber Threatscape report. Uh, let's go over that together. What, what sort of things did you focus on in the, this round of the report? Thank you, David. Yeah, we just released our Threatscape report. This is a report that focuses on the latest threat trends that uh, our CGI analysts have observed. And uh, we've highlighted three major trends that we've seen over uh, the year of 2020. The first one is that um, sophisticated adversaries are masking their identities with off-the-shelf tools. This is a trend that we've seen with a number of, you know, uh, suspected state-sponsored and organized criminal groups. Uh, They are using a combination of off-the-shelf tooling as well as open-source penetration testing tools at unprecedented scale. And, and you may ask, why would they do that? And they, they're probably doing that, well, first, because of tools are available uh, and easy to use, uh, but also uh, the main reason is to hide their identities. Hmm. So they, they look like a folks of, of perhaps lower capabilities than they actually are. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And our analysts have seen that with a group uh, that uh, Accenture refers to as Sourface. Uh, it's also known as Chafer or Remix Kitten. Uh, they've been around since at least 2014, and they're known for their cyber attacks against um, on oil and gas uh, communications and transportation industry in the U.S., Europe, or Saudi Arabia. Mm. And uh, our analysts have observed that they're using the legitimate Windows functions and freely available tools such as Mimikatz, which is uh, very known for credential dumping. Mm. What else have you been tracking? Um, A second trend that we've observed is that new sophisticated tactics uh, are being used to target business continuity. In fact, the threat report uh, notes how one group has aggressively targeted systems supporting Microsoft Exchange and Outlook Web Access, and then uses these compromised systems as beachheads within a victim's environment to hide traffic and uh, to relay commands and compromise email and steal data. Mm. Uh, in particular, uh, you know the, the group that uh, we've uh, observed, uh, which is operating from Russia and is known uh, as Turla or, or Snake, mm. uh, has been active within the last 10 years and is associated with um, many cyber attacks. Its target is really business continuity, so bringing systems down and um, compromising email and stealing data. Hmm. And then what's the third category that you've uh, that you've focused on here? So the, the third um, main trend that we've observed uh, is that ransomware uh, seems to be growing. It's it's feeding a new uh, profitable and scalable business model. As a matter of fact, there has been a 60% increase in the average ransom payment, and, and that's across the, the first quarter of 2020. 
So this obviously encourages these groups to expand their activities. Our analysts have observed that one group was performing a recruitment campaign on a popular dark web forum. This is a group known as uh, Sodino Kibi. Mm. It's also known as Revel. And so this basically demonstrates that, you know, this business is profitable, <laughs> it's scalable, and it will continue to be so over uh, the next year. Yeah, isn't it funny how a couple of years ago we were speculating that perhaps, uh, you know, crypto mining was going to take the place of, of ransomware. Uh, that did not play out, did it? I know. <laughs> No, it didn't. It didn't. <laughs> and there is no need to, right? <laughs> right, right. If people continue no. to, to make the payments, uh, then, you know, attackers will continue to take the easy way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, anything else in the report that you wanted to highlight? Well, uh, I think all of these trends basically uh, emphasize the need for agile security, right? Um, businesses need to be ready, need to be able to adapt quickly and to change their game quickly in response to the attacks that they're, that they're receiving. And uh, the fact that COVID-19 has radically shifted the way we work uh, also, uh, you know, drives a need for that security agility that is of utmost importance. All right. Well, Malik Ben Salem, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dave. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Oh, what a relief it is. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast, where I contribute to a regular segment called Security, huh? I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed and check out the Recorded Future podcast, which I also host. The subject there is threat intelligence and every week we talk to interesting people about timely cybersecurity topics. That's at recordedfuture.com slash podcast. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Guru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. 
visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. (laughs) 